Uh, good morning, and as you know, we'll be in uh, the book of Mark, chapter 8. So if you'd like to open your Bibles and follow along there, you may. Uh, as this time, I'm going to just uh, ask the Lord's blessing upon his word one more time before we begin. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you thankful for the great, thankful for your word, both the written and the living. And we do ask your blessing upon the preaching of it and that uh, what you have for us would sink deep into our hearts. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So here in, the, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 11, as we pick up uh, since the last time we were in the book of Mark, we come to uh, two different discussions that I see here that the Lord has with two different, two very different groups of individuals. And uh, it's kind of interesting. What we saw the last time, the Lord was on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and he had just healed uh, a deaf, mute man. And then he had come across, and he had fed 4,000 people. And now he comes across to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the eastern side, where he spent much of his time in his earthly ministry, preaching, teaching, healing throughout, uh, throughout his earthly ministry. And as we come to verse 11, we see a group of people, a group of individuals come up and engage the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. So the Pharisees come out to question Jesus again. It's interesting, you know, the Pharisees. We know this, this group of individuals. We've seen them before. It's been a little while since we've seen them last but kind of like a bad smell, they just keep hanging around, so to speak. You know, they were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in a manner of speaking, physically. You look at how often they just keep coming. They keep seeking him out and finding him. They were following, tagging along after. Hard not to when this man that they fail to recognize as their Messiah is doing all these miraculous things, having this tremendous following of people, of course, they're going to go and seek him out. But it's the attitude of their seeking that stands contrary to a true follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of that we see right away in, in, in the statement here. They came to dispute. To dispute, to question. Again, that, that, that word there in the Greek, and again, I'm not much of a Greek scholar, but looking it up, it also says to question, to search together. On the surface, that doesn't seem a very that doesn't seem wrong. Nothing bad. You know, God has no problem or does not mind individuals coming to question him. You think about the question. Did, did not Abraham question the Lord before he destroyed Sodom? Yes. Time and again he questioned. And we could spend a lot of time looking at other individuals who questioned God. Not questioned his motives, not questioned his intent, but questioned, seeking, desiring truth, desiring answer to know him more. And we see the Lord in, in, in the flesh here demonstrating God's long suffering <laughs> to those who question. Him. How often the Lord took time to speak with them. 
throughout his earthly ministry, he would take the time to talk to them, no matter how many times they came to engage him, to question him, to test him, to dispute him, time and again. He listened and spoke with them. He dealt straight with them. He answered their questions. Never ran away or avoided them. I don't know about you, but there are certain individuals who I see them coming to question me. I want to avoid them. <laughs> I want to hide the other way. But not the Lord. He stood. He gave them time. He gave them his attention. Again, that speaks of his long-suffering. It speaks of his compassion. It speaks of his love towards these people, regardless of their attitude toward him. You say, how often do I give people that kind of attention, that kind of love? Even if they're contrary to me, am I willing to deal with them, to answer them honestly? See, God doesn't mind questions. He encourages them. If you have a question, bring it to him. All your cares, all your concerns can be brought to him. It's the attitude behind it <laughs> to the matter. It says there, they came to dispute, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. Seeking a sign. It's more than just seeking here. I think the attitude is more of demanding. Demanding a sign. We see that by, by the word there, then it says testing him. In, in, in the King James, it's, it uses the term tempting. And it almost seems to give that, that sense in, in the Greek, that they were tempting him, whether they knew it or not. Prove it. Prove to us that you are who you say you are. Give us a sign. Again, regardless of everything he's done before publicly, things they've seen themselves, or at least those of their order had seen and heard. Just one more proof. Prove it just one more time. And if we don't think that there was a temptation there, let us turn to Matthew chapter 4. Keep your finger here, of course, for we will be back shortly. Matthew chapter 4, we're going to read just a few verses, beginning in verse 5. This is the passage of the, the Lord's temptation by the devil in the wilderness. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the Lord, just prove it. Prove who you say you are. What's wrong with that? 
Lord knew who he was. He knew he didn't have to prove it. Not to the devil, not to anyone. But at the same time, there was a temptation there. We are told elsewhere by the Apostle Paul, the Lord was tempted in all manner, but did not sin. And even there, you can see there'd be tempting. Prove it. Well, you know, they say it's, uh, it's not bragging if it's true. Well, it was true. But the Lord don't need to brag. But then we see here, too, that all this going on, them tempting him, them disputing with him, the Lord's response to them. In verse 12, But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. So Jesus denies them. Denies them. It's interesting. His first response, though, is he sighs. Now, I don't know if you remember a couple uh, messages ago when the Lord Jesus Christ healed the deaf mute man, he sighed. But that was a different word in the Greek. That word definitely gave the idea of, of sorrow, of grief over the, 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 the issues that this man was, that man was feeling, going through. Felt his pain, felt his anguish. He sighed, grieved with him. Not so much with this word. Not so much with these fellows. This sigh is more of a. <sighs> you ever been there? Someone questioning you, someone hounding you over an issue or a statement of some kind, and you just feel that hands clenching a little bit, like, (sighs) really? Yeah. And and, and I think, how do we know that part of that? Because it doesn't leave it there. He sighed. Again, the idea is he groaned with a sense of frustration. This word in the Septuagint was used in lamentations. We don't have to go there, but the same idea, a groaning, a frustration, an irritation. And when the Lord responds verbally to them, he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Interesting how often the Lord in his teaching, no matter who he's teaching, no matter who he's engaging with, always responds with a question. We know that that is one of the great teaching tools. Puts the thought, puts the, the, the question back on the questioner to question ideas, to question motives, to examine their own statement. Why? Why are you seeking a sign? Do you not have the word? Have you not read? Do you not know? As the Lord often told them. And not only that, have you not seen all the signs that have been taking place? We saw just a little while ago after he healed the deaf mute man, he does all things well. 
Why do you seek a sign? I think it's through our fallen nature. We want proof. How often we just, just, just prove it one more time, Lord. Again. I mean, but just one more time. Can you prove it one more time? Who you are. That you say you are. Just think elsewhere, he tells them that no sign will be given to this generation except that of the sign of Jonah. That the Son of Man will be in the belly of a whale for three days, three nights. That will be the final sign to them. The one that should clue them in to everything that he said was true. So this, he, he, he denies them their request, says no sign shall be given, and then he leaves. Verse 9 says, and he, de- and he left them, getting into the boat again, departing to the other side. It's almost like in this discussion, this inner exchange of thoughts and ideas, it's like he drops the mic. Drops the mic, walks out. <laughs> I've said all I'm going to say on this matter. Going on. Again, echoes that idea when the Lord told the disciples that if they came to a house that rejected them or a town that would not have them or listen to them, shake the dust off your clothes as you leave, as a sign to them. At some point, when those who will not hear after they've been told the truth time and again, there does come a point when you need to walk away and leave the matter in their own hearts. It's interesting. These, there are people today, just like the Pharisees, they follow after believers merely to dispute, to demand, but not truly to know. And sometimes when we recognize that to be so, we have to let them go. Can't waste your time beating your head against a wall for someone who will not hear, who will not listen. It's sad and it's heartbreaking, but even the Lord set an example there. So he ends one discussion with this group that were seeking after a sign, demanding a sign be given, the Lord to prove himself again. And it picks up as they're going across the sea. Well, again, how many times they zigzagged across that body of water? And how many times the Lord was able then to teach the twelve to expound greater on something that had just happened to these specific men? So we get to verse 14. Yes, sorry, verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. So again, food comes into play. I think I've made it clear my position on food. <laughs> yeah, I am pro-food. I am very pro-food. But it's interesting, this statement kind of sets the stage for this next discussion that is about to take place. And right here, as it says, that 
that they did not have more than one loaf of bread with them. I couldn't help but think someone had one job. Let them down. Philip? (laughs) Andrew? Someone. But no, once again, they're out, and the Lord's going to take this opportunity to teach them something greater. We come to the next verse then. Verse 15, he says, Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. So Jesus is going to instruct them. He begins instructing them, Beware. Take care. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. I think most of us know and understand that leaven is used to picture sin throughout Scripture. Generally, I think there is one passage where it does not, but generally it is an illustration of sin. It's something bred of corruption, which is an odd thing because leaven is, again, takes us back to the food issue, bread. Without leaven, without yeast, you cannot have risen breads. I like flat breads, but I like some risen bread too. But it's interesting to think that something that provides something so delicious, so inviting, pictures something so vile, so distasteful, repugnant. Again, the idea of something corrupted. It says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You know, just a little bit. You can't, it's kind of like, well, you put a little in there, it's like, well, that part will, is bad, but this part's okay. Uh, it's kind of like, well, if you had, how big of a punch bowl would it have to be if a little bit of arsenic was dropped in it for you to still drink from it? I think we'd all avoid that punch bowl pretty clear. That's kind of the idea about leaven contaminates the whole thing. That's part of Jesus' teaching when he brings this up at this point and at others. Why it's so severe? Don't let even a little bit of leaven come into your thinking, into your heart, because it will corrupt you. And interesting here, too, he's talking about the Pharisees and Herod. Interesting, I didn't see Herod at this moment. But part of Gospels, the different things, how they plays in, and different things, we won't look completely at it. But the Pharisees, who had just been debated, discussing uh, things with the Lord, and we know them to be the religious leaders of the time, the elite of the day, a group of people who had already made up their minds on the matter. And that was part of it, too. It wasn't like they were really seeking. Like, one more proof, one more sign would have made the difference. We know from all the other encounters, they were only looking for a sign by which to condemn him. A means by which to prove to all those who are following him that he's false. He's a false messiah. He's a false teacher. That's what they were looking for. They weren't looking for a sign to help them believe. 
They were looking for a sign to help them convict. And then there's Herod. He was a ruler, a political leader. So what was going on with him? Now there's a lot there. There's a lot of sin that we could look at with, with these two groups. A lot of leaven there, if you were. We had the false teaching of the Pharisees, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, teaching things but not doing themselves. We had this ruler who lived worldly, to put it mildly, an individual who took his own brother's wife as his own. We saw that several chapters ago. As a result of that, he, he put John the Baptist in prison and was caught in the snare of a promise that he made and ended up beheading him. But through that, though, Herod heard of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wanted to meet him. Again, keep your fingers here, but let's look to the, to the book of Luke, chapter 9. We're going to look at two little short verses, passages there. Luke chapter 9, and just read verse 7 to verse 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. Herod said, John, I have beheaded But who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And in and of itself, maybe that would be a good thing, desiring to see the Lord. But let's look at another passage in Luke to get a clear idea what was the motivation. What did Herod really want to see? So let's look at Luke 23. This kind of goes far beyond where we are yet, but it does give us the understanding of what What was Herod's motivation? Luke 23, verse 8. This is after the Lord had already been in front of of Pilate and pronounced uh, his uh, sentence of crucifixion was already pronounced upon him. Luke chapter 23. Let's just look at verse 8. Now when Herod saw Jesus... He was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he had hoped to see some miracle done by him. But when he questioned him with many words, or then he questioned him with many words, but he, but he, the Lord, answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then Herod, with his men of war, treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. And that very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously, they had been at enmity with each other. He wanted to see a miracle. He wanted to see a show. He wanted to see something special. Isn't that so much like today? Show me something. Perform for me. That was what he wanted. 
What a new performance. In fact, even the Lord said this of this generation. At that time, Matthew eleven, sixteen and 17. We don't have to turn there. Let's read that briefly. Oops, wrong chapter. My sticky note was covering up my verse. Verse 16 of chapter 11 of Matthew says, But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned to you, and you did not lament. You would not perform for us. You would not do what we want you to do. How often people come to God in that manner. And said, almost like God should be some genie. I request this. I desire that. Where is it? And want, they want to be the puppet masters to the Almighty. They never realize that they're trying to do exactly what Satan did himself by putting himself on the throne. I will dictate to you instead of humbling myself before you. So that's what we see with these two groups and what the Lord is cautioning and warning his disciples against. Against seeking after a sign rather than simply taking God at his word. But it's interesting that the Lord, uh, after he says this, as he instructs them, he warns them, back in Mark, that the disciples then engage in some misguided reasoning. So back in chapter 8, verse 16, it says, And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. It's because we have no bread. That is why he is talking about leaven. He's doing it to point out our failure to bring food along on the trip. And again, what do we see from the Lord? We see long-suffering. But we see a God who, more than anything, will deal with people. (laughs) Will call them out. God is no respecters of men whether he's dealing with the Pharisees or whether he's dealing with his closest companions. Now he does so with them because he loves them too much to leave them in such a state. Again, the Lord responds with a question. Verse 17, but Jesus being aware of it, I don't know how these, you know, these boats aren't that big. I don't know, were they over in the corner whispering to themselves? I mean, it's not, you'd think he'd overhear it. I don't know, maybe they thought the wind was too strong and he wouldn't notice. I joke because, like Pastor Kern mentioned, (laughs) this is me more than not when I look at these fellas. But anyways, so he responds, why do you reason because we have no bread? 
do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Some strong words there. <laughs> he doesn't pull any punches with these guys. And often that, that, in some ways, that reminds me, it's been a while since I used an illustration from the Green Bay Packers, so. But there's a story of Vince Lombardi and, and his players. And one, if you know anything about Vince Lombardi and the players of that time, his favorite was Paul Horning. If you know, Paul Horning was a running back. But he was more than that because he played quarterback in college at Notre Dame. He was gifted. He could play a myriad of offensive positions. And, 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 and Coach Lombardi just loved him because he was such a talent. And he would be able to make plays that just defied logic at times, but also it confounded others' defenses. As I say, you know, you've probably heard of the, the, the famous Packer sweep. People tend to think of it as a power running play. It was more than that. Because within that were a myriad of options, and one of them was you could be pitched back to the running back, and the running back, because he has not gone forward with the ball yet, had the option to pass the ball. And if Paul Horning was involved in that play, he could pass, and he could pass well. The defense had to honor that, but he could run well. So they had to defend all these options, which why that play was such a dominant play for the Packers at that time, because they had the personnel to run it. But anyway, Paul Horning, everyone knew on the team that Paul Horning was Coach Lombardi's favorite. But interestingly enough, when it came time to choose someone out in practice, he let Horning have it more than anyone else. And one day, finally, you know, Paul Horning came up, Coach, why are you you tearing into me so much? I'm doing my best. You know, and he's like, Paul... Everybody knows you're my favorite. But this way, when I tear into them, they know I don't play favorites. They know even my favorite (laughs) gets to hear it when they don't do right. Somehow that makes us think of our Lord a little bit. He is compassionate. He is loving. He loves us so much that when we get things wrong, or start heading in the wrong direction, he's not going to leave us there, and he's going to let us know. He loves us too much to let us head into error. Similarly with these guys. So sometimes that strong language may seem a little harsh, but it's really love. It's love. Anyways, as he moves forward, as he questions them, and Arin draws them back to things that they've seen and experienced. He goes on, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? Someone said, why do you reason because we have made no bread? Really? Seriously? Do you not trust what you've seen? Do you not believe what you've heard? Do you doubt what you've experienced? You think because we have no bread that I'm talking about this? Do you think that it's a problem that there's only one loaf of bread on this whole boat? 
Again, he reminds them then. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of fragments did we take up? Remember that? I said, 12. Good, you remembered. (laughs) You remembered. In verse 20, he says, Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large basketfuls of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. Do you really think one loaf, having only one loaf of bread between 13 men is a problem? Almost I interjected my own thoughts, the Lord's thinking, again, this is my human flesh here. You may not have enough bread here, but you have me. You remember all this. I was able to provide for all those people, all those times. You saw it. You experienced. You ate it. And yet you doubt. It is not wrong to reason. We see that there. They reasoned amongst themselves. Again, just like questioning, it's not wrong to reason. It's not wrong to reason things out. God even encourages reason in Isaiah 1.18. He says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Come, let us reason. Let us talk the matter out. But part of it, the disciples were reasoning amongst themselves. That's what I see part here. They weren't reasoning with the Lord. It's almost like they were huddled off in that corner of the boat amongst themselves. They had the Lord Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the one who is the truth, right there. And they were over there reasoning amongst themselves. Now I know you and I never do that. Ever reason amongst ourselves apart from the Lord? I think that understand that we all do that. An issue comes up, a problem arises, a question is posed. And we reason in our own minds, or even amongst others. You see, reason can get in the way of understanding. Trying to connect dots to a predetermined location, because that's part of it. We think we know the answer. We think we know where we're supposed to go. Even in logic and reason, and instead of allowing the truth to lead us, allowing Him to lead us to the point we need to get to, we try to find our way on our own. We get lost. We'd end up into some backwater, some swamp of some kind, confused how we got there. But thankfully, the Lord does not leave us there. Just like ultimately, it gets in the way of faith. That's part of what's going on here. Both these conversations, lack of faith. 
Time and time again, I just, it always brings me back to that. The Lord brings me back. It's faith. It's faith. Trust me. Trust me. And all my failure to understand, and all my desire to know what I need to understand, rather than me to try and make it all fit together. One of those verses that, this, that I think of at this time when it says, anything that is not of faith is sin. Well, there's a big slap of cold water on the face a lot of times. How often I find myself there. Figure things out for myself. Make things work on my own. Or why they don't. Why I lack understanding. It was a lack of faith. Did I turn to him and consult him? In my boat, so to speak, of life, am I off reasoning amongst myself and other fallible human beings? Or do I turn to him? Well, I hope all of us We'll turn to him, <laughs> regardless of where we're at in our lives, no matter what questions we may have, no matter what understanding we may lack, <laughs> may we simply fall before the Lord of glory and ask him to give us the truth we need that we may understand. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you humbly asking that, that you may help us to understand what we need to and trust you where we fail to. That in so doing, we may simply follow you by faith and give you all the glory. In your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.